0: From Greenbiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of
1: 350.
0: I'm Joel McCauer here at Greenbiz Headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, it's 2015 in review. We'll talk about how the role of the Chief Sustainability Officer is changing. We'll talk with the head of sustainability at a Fortune 500 company to hear her perspective. And we'll talk about the biggest stories of the year. It's the end of the year as we know it. This week on 350. It's December 29, 2015. Welcome to this special year-end edition of GreenBiz 350. I'm here with GreenBiz senior editor Lauren Hepler, who's back from a little post cop European vacay. Welcome back, Lauren.
2: Thank you, Joel. Good to be back.
0: Yeah, how was it? What'd you do? Where'd you go? What'd you do?
2: It was good. So we were obviously in Paris for the big climate talks, and then I headed west to Spain, where I was introduced to the pincho, the Basque country, special form of tapas, and lots of octopus, and all sorts of fun stuff.
0: I was hoping that pincho was something you drank, no?
2: No, I know, I wish. Lots of cider, though. Hard cider is a specialty.
0: So um, uh, we were in Paris together, and, you know, it's sort of weird we left. I uh, went home to, to back to the Bay Area, and you went off the southern France and Spain to, uh, you know, we didn't really know what was happening yet.
2: I know, it was bizarre. My boyfriend was a little annoyed that I was checking Twitter incessantly, like, did we get a deal? Did we get a deal? Um, And I will say I was surprised when you saw that there was some of that language in there that was much more telegraphed from the activist side um, that we saw in in Paris, like the 1.5 degree temperature rise goal versus 2.0, which... Again, some of this we'll have to see how, how binding it is, how it plays out over time, but I was struck by the fact that it was even included in the official text.
0: Well, we're uh, already sort of heading over to the territory we want to talk about next, so we're going to forego the week in review and just go right to the year in review.
2: So now is the point in the podcast when we usually talk about what happened in the past week, but it's been a very busy 2015, so we're going to talk about what's happened for the last year. Um, So being that it has been such a busy year, we're going to do this in two parts. First, we're going to look at the big picture, what 2015 has meant for the global climate movement and the corporate sustainability scene, and then we're going to get more specific and we're going to talk about specific industries that have been most in play during 2015. So to join us in this endeavor is our variable, uh, senior writer, Barbara Grady. Barbara, how's it going?
3: Good. How are you, Lauren? Good, good.
2: So uh, have you caught your breath yet now that we're winding down the end of the year? Barely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I think um you've heard us yakking about it on several podcasts now. But I will say that 2015 seemed like a a big year for a lot of reasons. Uh, But COP21, the United Nations climate talks in Paris, uh, that just wound wound down in the last couple of weeks, uh, really was sort of a seminal moment. Um, But before that, I think there was another really sort of iconic moment in this uh, sustainability movement, and that was the Pope's climate encyclical. And Barbara, I know you covered that. Uh, What were some of the sort of the key points there that you think sort of made that such a big story?
3: Well, the Pope asked everyone to take the climate as an issue that they need to be involved in because that's a kind of moral imperative. So what was interesting about that is businesses, of course, deal with consumers and deal with each other. And so they couldn't really ignore it if they wanted to. And yet at the same time that the Pope came out with this proclamation, a lot of businesses were already coming to the table and saying, we really need to do something big. And they were already cutting their emissions and um, calling for a major climate deal to come out of Paris. And a number of very big, iconic companies were pledging to go 100% renewable. So it all came together more or less at the same moment or the same season at any rate.
2: Right, it does seem like a sort of The Pope's participation sort of made the climate conversation more global in nature, sort of bringing in some of the issues like global human rights and poverty and sort of talking about that in conversation with climate change and some of these maybe somewhat wonkier environmental issues that we hear a lot about. Um, but I also think that um, it sort of made the climate conversation maybe less controversial
3: to have have the Pope talking
2: about this isn't just something that environmentalists are harping about.
3: That's a good point, Lauren. I mean, the Vatican is not known as a left-wing institution. <laughs> right. So the fact that a faith leader with, what, 1.2 billion people in the on in the surface of the globe, uh, following him is talking about this as something we really need to pay attention to. It's like, woke everybody up.
0: Yeah, and I think what was interesting is he started a lot. The, the Encyclical launched a thousand or thousands of conversations. Uh, we published one on Greenbiz uh, that was really started as a private conversation. Um, Terry Yossi, who's the president and CEO of the World Environment Center in Washington, D.C., and an occasional Greenbiz contributor, uh, did a critique of the encyclical, and he sent it to uh, his own private mailing list, about 80 people, which I happened to be on that list, and and that got a conversation going uh, with a really interesting group of people, from Bob, Bob Langer, our editor-at-large, former uh, sustainability exec at Walmart, a former EPA head, a former White House climate official, um, some, some sustainability professors, corporate sustainability executives, and I went back. Because uh, Terry Yossi, in his sort of initial foray sort of had some critiques. He said that didn't, you know maybe it's too little too late. It didn't cover women's issues. How much can the Pope really influence? I don't know. He sort of discounted it, and, and a number of people took issue. And this really interesting conversation about you know by a group of our peers, people in the corporate sustainability and, and related fields. And so uh, we'll, we'll post a link to that. Uh, as we called it, thoughtful discussion on uh, climate. But I think that was really a lot of the value that that document brought to the conversation was to get people talking about it, including some people who don't normally talk about climate change.
3: That's a great point, Joel. I remember when those emails were coming in, as soon as Terry's pronouncement was out there, People were just piling on, and they just kept coming and talk, we talking. We got to make a story out of this.
0: <laughs> and I think part of it was that, you know, sure, it's you know, I mean, <laughs> the Pope, I guess, is infallible, but he, you know, some of his arguments may have people may have had issues with it. Uh, but you know, and I think people were sort of of two minds. One is, you know, did he say the right thing? And 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 the other was, oh my gosh, that Pope is talking about climate change. <laughs> you know, this is a historic moment, and we should just you know, be happy about that. And so uh, that was, you know, and, and, and the question is, and you asked this question before we went on the air, Barbara, did, what what uh, impact did that, did that have on COP21? And, mm-hmm. you know, not, I'm not sure. i um, would love to hear your thoughts, Lauren, but, you know, I think it certainly helped. It couldn't, didn't hurt it, but it may have uh, paved the way for some conversations, maybe for some people to be a little more open that this was, you know, now part of the dialogue with the Pope.
2: I think it did definitely serve as sort of a rallying point uh, in the civil society crowd. I saw several NGOs and activists alike uh, sort of citing the Pope as like a high profile um, person that is linking, like I was mentioning, uh, linking the social facets of climate change with the environmental and economic issues in play. So again, when you see something like a more aggressive 1.5 degree temperature goal added in the final text, I think that is something that certainly, if not directly caused by, was colored by um, someone like the Pope talking so passionately about the need to pay attention to developing countries, to poor countries, and not just sort of run them over in the pursuit of a global Mm -hmm. accord.
3: It seemed like over the course of the summer and then into the fall that there was an opening of the floodgates and people were really willing to talk about this and commit to mitigating climate change in a big way. All these companies coming forward with renewable energy pledges and emission cuts, the Pope, that there was just like a deluge of action. Yeah, definitely, (laughs) because the the Pope's encyclical definitely
2: was not coming out in a vacuum. We Mm -hmm. already had um, some business coalitions, NGO groups getting involved, um, things like uh, renewable energy procurement groups, people trying to make it right. easier to, to buy clean energy and en mass, um, but also groups like We Mean Business, who are more focused on the advocacy side and getting businesses to publicly come out and sort of put their weight behind climate action.
3: Right. And then companies left and right would join those groups.
0: And part of this, by the way, we didn't reference this, but it, we're going to reference this article that, uh, that I put together. It's sort of an annual little thing I do. It does a look back at the year, and, and it's, it, it's called 2015 was the year that. Dot dot dot. Yeah, and did that last year and then the previous years. And, and the purpose of that is to sort of, the, you know, we, we get so caught up in sort of the minutiae. We sometimes get caught up in the challenges and frustrations, of, but but there's usually in most years a lot to celebrate, and certainly uh, the Pope's encyclical and COP21 are you know both uh, in that category. But the, this whole idea of partnerships and alliances, as we're starting to get into, I think really is is part of it as well, and that we've seen it uh, in so many different forms. Uh, from first of all, there's, there's a number of corporate mergers. Like uh, we saw the merger of Heinz and Kraft and and some of the challenges that, that, that those, and see what there's a bunch more coming up, what's coming up? Dow,
2: DuPont, potentially Anheuser, Miller Coors, which would be
0: beer monoliths
2: of yeah. some sort. Uh,
0: EMC and Dell, right. uh, Office Depot and Staples. Maybe, and, yeah. And and, and yeah, those, those are all on the on the, on the potential. And the question there is, you know, does 1 plus 1 equal 11? You know, we don't do when... When these companies come together, and, and I think uh, obviously, phone staples, Dow, and Dupont are, are both really interesting. Should they, those mergers be consummated, because they both have really robust sustainability programs and veteran sustainability directors, passionate people. Um, what happens when those collide when they become part of the same company? You know, probably somebody somebody lo- loses, somebody leaves. Uh, but what happens to the programs and the commitments and the engagements and the partnerships? and the memberships and all the different things that they are a part of, that's going to be really interesting to watch.
2: Definitely, and I will say we did have a great piece of reporting by Keith Larson, one of our great writers. He looked in-depth at the kraft Heinz merger, which has obviously already happened, and what he found there was sort of the antithesis of what you're talking about, Joel. He found an instance, especially on Kraft's part, of a real laggard uh, they had sustainability goals where the years were shifting. Like, at first uh-huh. it was a 2020 goal, and then, oh, maybe let's push it out. We didn't hit it. Um, just some very slippery numbers. It was so a great
3: piece of reporting. It was, but it's one of those
2: things where it, mer- it really makes you think about um, what happens on the flip side when there are companies that don't have robust sustainability departments, and then the company gets bigger. What does mm-hmm. that mean for their impact on society and the environment?
0: And then there's other kinds of partnerships. So uh, we saw Target and Walmart come together to look at uh, at how they were addressing cosmetic companies around toxic ingredients. Um, Heather Clancy wrote a wrote a great piece about that. And and uh, they, you know, both companies have published lists of chemicals they wanted to uh, see eliminated from some of their products, like triclosan, which is the the sort oh, of ingredient in, uh, I think, in, in hand lotions and hand cleaners, I guess. And so they came together in a really unprecedented way uh, under the auspices of a group called Forum for the Future. Um, and those kinds of alliances are really growing in our field. Uh, some groups like BSR have been doing them for a while, they'll bring together, uh, either whole sectors or whole value chains. Um, I remember years ago going to a, the, one of the early meetings of something called the Clean Cargo Working Group, where they brought... Uh, the biggest uh, cargo uh, ocean-going cargo companies, uh, Matson, and I forget all the. K- uh, I might just put my mic on the name. Bears, thank you, and some of the other lines, along with the biggest shippers, HPs and Dells, and and Nikes and, and Walmart and others, uh, to try and come up with uh, some standards and about how to think about the carbon impact of shipping of shipping. It happens to be very carbon intensive and actually wasn't part of the COP21 agreement. Uh, they used, uh, these bunker fuels that are highly polluting, and all kinds of environmental impacts. Um, and, but only by bringing together the value chain um, you know, can you really impact the whole industry. Because as big as a company like Nike or Walmart or McDonald's is, they're not big enough to necessarily uh, have an impact in moving the needle uh, and then, you know, the, the ultimate of all this was, it, we saw COP21 was We Mean Business, um, which was this group, uh, Alliance of Alliances, BSR, and the Business Council for Sustainable Development Series, Climate Group, and others coming together to, you know, address the business voice uh, uh, you know, at, in Paris, in, in harmony, with all speaking, you know, from the, from the same page and talking about asking and wanting the same things. So I think there's extraordinary power in this, and we're going to be seeing more and more of it.
3: There was also the American Business Act on Climate Pledge, which started with 13 companies in July, and by December there was 154 companies. This is the White House, initially? yes. I mean that was quite a pylon. <laughs> yeah, I mean again, companies.
0: So that's part of that is the convening power uh, of White House, or in some cases, Paris. Uh, an event, the convening power, a forcing function of an event like COP21, um, but there's just a lot going on in everyday business now. Where again, like a, a Walmart and Target coming together, or a bunch of shipping companies coming together, um, and um, some of those need uh, a neutral party like BSR or Ceres or some other groups. Investors is another alliance of uh, you know, big investment yeah. really the palm big investment oil trust.
3: users. Yep. yep, we've seen
0: it in palm oil and some others. So uh, this is uh, we're going to be seeing more and more of this.
2: Yeah, that's a great point, and I think um, obviously also in through groups like We Mean Business in the run up to Paris, we were seeing some pretty aggressive goals being set by individual companies, like 100% renewable energy, and right. things, not small commitments. Um, and to that end, I know, Joel, you've done a lot of reporting this year around specific corporate milestones, like um, in-house sustainability efforts um, that had sort of come of age and hit that decade
0: mark. Yeah, there were two big ones. One was uh, Ecoimagination, uh, General Electric's uh, initiative, um, which was launched in May 2005 you know, to you know, look at you know, it's more of a marketing push, but it was a way of aligning a lot of the company's products and services around sustainability and, and energy efficiency and even climate uh, emissions reductions. And, um, and it was very, because it was on the sort of marketing side, it was very revenue focused about how can we generate more business. And it was a great example, I think a real turning point uh, for the industry uh, for industry in general to look at sustainability as a value of top line growth, not just bottom line improvement through reduced costs. But how does this drive revenue? And what's the big opportunity here? And uh, you know GE uh you know brought together a lot of different things it was it's doing some it had been doing for years so it wasn't exactly new the, but they started to not just put it around the the marketing cream of eco-imagination, but they started to create um, some metrics around it. They started to create some criteria so that in order to be deemed uh, an eco-imagination product, uh, it had to go through a scorecarding process of the third-party verification, uh, internally designed, but it was was verified by an independent third party that said it does have this kind of reduction relative to its predecessor, relative to the industry standard. Um, And so they could begin to quantify Uh, mostly for customers, for the world, but potentially for customers, that the value proposition was not just dollar savings. So 10 years into this, in in May 2015, I took a look and see where it it had gone and and where it's probably going next. And then the other was Walmart. Um, Just a few months after Ecomagination, in uh, August 2005, uh, the uh, CEO, uh, then CEO of of Walmart, made a speech that uh, committed the company to some extraordinary things for any company, let alone a behemoth like Walmart around getting to 100% renewable energy, getting to zero waste, and creating uh, more basically more environmentally sustainable products. And so that's in some ways a heavier lift than, or at least as heavy a lift as what GE was doing and. So it was time uh, this uh, soon after August to take a look at that and take an assessment on how they're doing.
2: Yeah, and just quickly, I know we'll link to the pieces, but um, part of the story there was that uh, there has been progress to date as the like Walmart big buyer of clean energy now in particular, uh, but also still work to be done.
0: Yeah, I mean, the whole Walmart story, is, it can be said in the same way, uh, still work to be done. <laughs> right. uh, it's, it's definitely a work in progress. They haven't hit their goals yet of 100% and zero and you know, whatever the other goal is, it's sort of undefined about green products. But uh, it's really interesting to look at how that's been moving along. But uh, you brought up renewable energy and and the corporate procurement of renewables. Um, I mean, that is one of the big stories, I think, this year. It's been going on for a long time as a lot of sustainability trends percolate in small ways and percolate and percolate years and years and years, and it looks like there's not a lot of progress. Uh, and then all of a sudden there's sort of an uptick. We saw that with solar really last year and, and again continuing this year where really all of a sudden after years of significant but small growth, it all of a sudden just shot up. And, and now we're seeing that uh, with renewable energy purchases of green power and of course it's all ties to COP and it all ties to concerns about climate but also the maturing of, of the industry.
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think specifically another thing we've heard a lot about is companies coming together to teach each other how to execute what can be really complicated contracts. Um, You've got groups like RMI and uh, WWF that are convening companies um, and showing them sort of how you go state by state to bolster your wind or your solar because, you know, it's not a level playing field. You can't just go buy clean energy wherever you want to and, um, the specifically when it comes to the financial part of all of this, how you make sure that um, clean energy is a good long-term bet that it, it's girding you against the potential volatility of fossil fuels. you really have to uh, think about 10-year contracts and and broker these things for the long term yeah
3: there's also the re 100 group, which has just dozens and dozens of companies on it now, maybe over a hundred, but they kind of show the way also for how companies can go to 100% renewable.
0: Yeah, RE is a renewable energy, and that's one of the 100s. The other 100 is the CE 100. we've got the mm-hmm. RE 100 for renewable energy and the CE 100 for the circular economy. That's been organized by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Ellen will be speaking at our Green Biz uh, 16 event in February in Scottsdale. Uh, but that's another effort to bring companies together. In this case, 100 companies, I don't think they're quite there yet, but they're They've got some of the some big companies, some very some of the world's biggest brands, who are now starting to look at what does it really mean to have a circular economy where you're really keeping the molecules in play, and and, and that's going to be. We're going to talk a little bit about that a little bit more coming up with uh, John Davies and, and and with Catherine Winkler from EMC, uh, but that's going to be one of the stories we're really going to be watching going forward. And just beginning to see, and I think. Like renewable energy, it's going to be one of these stories that percolates for years and years and gets a little more attention and a little more attention and a little more attention. It doesn't go that far, and all of a sudden, whether it's in two years or five or seven or ten, is we're going to just see this upswing where all of a sudden it's going to come together.
2: Mm-hmm. Maybe. Like renewable energy over yeah. the last couple of years. Um, yeah, so this, this has been a bit of a whirlwind, uh, and we'll be back later in the show with industry-specific big stories from the past year. But right now, we're going to chat with Green Biz Vice President and Senior Analyst John Davies, who runs the GreenBiz Executive Network.
0: Cover the year in review without talking about the year in the profession. The profession, of course, being sustainability executives, particularly in big companies. And here to talk about that is my friend and colleague John Davies, vice president and senior analyst at GreenBiz Group. Uh, John, uh, how are you doing?
1: Doing great, Joel. It's great to be here. Yeah.
0: Well, John runs among the many things you do here at GreenBiz. You run uh, the Green Biz Executive Network, GBEN, which we lovingly call GBEN. Um, we haven't really talked about GBEN on this podcast, so why don't you give us the elevator pitch?
1: Sure, Joel. It's our member-based peer-to-peer learning forum for sustainability professionals. And really what we do is we bring together, we have about 85 members, and we bring them together three times a year in small meetings, 25 to 30 people at a meeting, not a lot of PowerPoint. It's really more about discussion and sharing good practices.
0: So these are all big companies. I think there's a billion-dollar revenue threshold to join.
1: Right. I mean, we do everything under Chatham House rule, so I don't really feel comfortable naming all the companies in it. But yes, it's a lot of brands that you would know.
0: And some you haven't, some uh, B2B companies that uh, I had never heard of before. Uh, but the conversations, uh, and I have the great good fortune of being able to go to all of these meetings and 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 listen to um, these conversations that we call peer to peer learning and what the members tend to call group therapy. But uh, you know they're really extraordinary, and, and it's a really extraordinary opportunity to look into what's going on inside companies from the people who are who are uh, doing the work, doing the hard work. So. John thought what have you do is sort of give us some of the highlights of 2015 What are some of the themes that you have heard a lot about from the the companies that became focuses of conversation?
1: I think what's interesting is that some of the themes are evergreen they're themes that come up year over year. I mean we've been holding the network meetings for over seven years now, and so some of these things come up every meeting uh, things like reporting and surveys that companies get asked to fill out and i think it's it's reaching this point where people are really irritated by some of the surveys and uh you know it's not that they want to get rid of transparency but they want to get rid of the constant daily surveying by their suppliers and and investors and all those groups so where are the surveys coming from they're coming from everywhere you know whether it's djsi and and Ro- robo sam and those or it's coming from their customers or it's coming from activist groups that want to focus on a very specific issue
2: yeah we definitely hear a lot about survey fatigue <laughs> it seems like a, a real symptom of duress um one of the other things that seems to be sort of consistently on the radar is this issue of engagement um what what are you hearing on that front
1: so with engagement that's you know that employee engagement is another evergreen topic we could list that as a topic for every meeting and people would find something to talk about. But I think what's happened now is um, not just general employee engagement and, and green teams, but we're seeing companies really focus on how do I engage middle management, which has been a real challenge for companies. And, and probably the biggest trend we're seeing, uh, Joel mentioned I have this other role as senior analyst and we do a lot of research around that. Um, We're about ready to put out our state of the profession report in the spring, probably in March. We're seeing a lot more of uh, roles getting embedded into organizations. So last year, we saw about 10% of respondents say that they had someone in supply chain dedicated to sustainability. This year, it looks like it's going to be more like 45% of the organizations responding.
0: So one of the things you hear a lot of, of chief sustainability officers talk about it. And a little bit later in, in today's episode, we're going to have uh, some an actual CSO from uh, EMC. Uh, they, they often say, you know, my goal is to work myself out of a job. That is by having uh, sustainability so embedded in part of the company, exactly as you're saying is happening, that they don't need a CSO. Is that ever going to happen?
1: I, I don't think so. I, I argue with uh, number of CSOs about this. It, the argument has gotten less and less loud over, over the past few years. But I think what it really is, is not that they're going to work themselves out of a job, but that they're going to constantly work themselves into new jobs. You know, in, in sustainability, you're not trying to build a big organization, right? You're you're more the early scout. And so I think most of the CSOs that I talk with, it's, it's sort of like... Uh, Heraclitus, right? You can't dip your foot in the same river twice. You know, they're constantly looking for new challenges and seeking to embed what they've worked on into other parts of the organization.
2: How do you hear about people actually making that case, though, like uh, in terms of sustainability as a financial benefit, like energy efficiency or something like that? Or we hear more about the lens of risk potentially,
1: well, I, I think risk is a sort of new area for sustainability to get engaged with. Um, companies don't like the word risk a lot of times because it means something that they have to disclose in their 10K. So they may want to put it under the, the conversation of resiliency rather than uh, risk and, and having investors ask about it. But I think um, what what we're really seeing is that as you find, you know, um, I think maybe Catherine, you can ask her about materiality analysis. And so as companies look at materiality and say, what are the important things we should be working on? That's how they're engaging with the other parts of the organization and embedding work into supply chain, into procurement, into travel, all, all areas.
0: This is Catherine Winkler, the CSO from uh, EMC that we'll have on a little bit later today. Um, so where do you think this is going? I mean, do you think that you've been doing this for seven years now, and you said that there are some evergreen topics like engagement. Um, is the job shifting, though, in, in other ways where it's it's going to be different in a year or two um, because the river keeps flowing?
1: Well, I think one one thing we've seen over the last couple of years is this convergence of the traditional CSR role, corporate social responsibility, with more of a focus on human rights issues and, and that area, and environmental sustainability, and seeing both those social and environmental roles sort of merge together um, in one going forward. So I think whether you came from one side or the other um, originally, you're learning new things about that other, those other areas that you haven't worked in.
2: I have one sort of pet project that I've been reporting on a lot, and that's this whole area of the circular economy. I'm curious, from your perspective, how much of this is hype, how much of this is a a real tangible area that you think companies will be interested in?
1: I think there's a a lot of interest. In fact, we're just uh, um, finishing up some survey work around the circular economy, and I think it's early days for it. I mean, I think people understand the circular part, and they're sort of thinking oh yeah it must be recycling and that i'm not sure people are as clear on the economy part of how do we change business models how are we how are we embedding this into our business but from our from our initial results that we're looking at this is definitely something on the minds of sustainability executives
0: uh, you mentioned survey fatigue earlier and one of the ironies here is that part of what you do at green is, is that you uh, run a survey <laughs> called the green I mean, intelligence panel which is what uh, about 5,000 uh, professionals out there who allow us to survey them from time to time and uh, you you do projects for our own research and our own reports but also for some clients what's coming up in 2016
1: well we've we've done some really interesting um surveys. And and luckily, people still respond and don't find them too annoying. Uh, One around collaboration and an increase in in collaboration. I think companies are looking at things like what comes out of COP21 and and the kinds of efforts that they need to put in. And they know they can't do it alone. And so they're looking at who can they partner with, whether it's in the NGO community with other um, peers in their own industry, uh, or other types of groups so collaborations really big I think we're seeing um, a lot more in renewables uh, that that's going to be a big topic um, and then like I said the circular economy is is a big topic for us uh, especially at green biz 16. yeah <laughs> well we'll see you there uh, and we'll have
0: links to both the green biz executive network and the green biz intelligence panel on uh, the webpage below uh, this podcast. Um, but John, thanks so much uh, for stopping by. Yeah, John is one of the few people in the company that isn't based here at 350, Franco Gallo Plaza, uh, based in Southern California. So we always love when you're in town and we'll keep talking every time you come visit. Thanks, John.
1: It's always a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Lauren and Joel.
0: So let's pick up the second half of our conversation about some of the big stories of 2015. And this time, we're going to zero in on uh, three sectors, um, food, uh, banking, and cars, Uh, maybe at least three of the essentials of life, maybe not the essentials, but um, topics that have uh, really, I think, over the over the course of the year uh, have really been front and center for us and we'll start with food because it's you know who, who, why wouldn't we do that and there was a story mm-hmm. that uh, Heather uh, did uh, just published about um, well that I think sort of brings a lot of this to light
2: yeah our senior writer Heather Clancy had a great piece early this week on uh, On cage-free eggs We've sort of seen this boom In large food companies Talking publicly about animal welfare You saw it a few months ago With McDonald's making a big commitment To antibiotic-free chicken That a lot of other companies have since followed And now you've got, along with McDonald's Talking about their egg supply chain You've got Panera, General Mills, Kellogg All sorts of the biggest names In food um, Saying they're really taking a closer look At how they source their ingredients um, and maybe implementing stricter standards. As always, the issue is sort of how you follow through with these things. McDonald's new commitment is a 10-year commitment, so that's obviously a pretty long time. Um, we also have had some pretty spirited comments on Heather's article talking about, um, you know, how what is a cage-free egg, how that is even defined, and what ultimately the health and environmental benefits are. Um, but I do think that food is a great paradigm to talk about um, some of the efforts that big for Fortune 500 companies are making to dig into their supply chains. And I know, Barbara, this is something you've written about also in terms of how companies are looking at supply chains, and part of that is using new technology within the supply chains.
3: Yeah, I think we saw two trends. We saw big companies like Kellogg's and General Mills and so on really focus on their supply chains and helping farmers that they actually have fairly distant relationships with, but helping them become sustainable and offering them incentives and training and so on, and being more conscientious about their sourcing of materials, I mean, of commodities and so on. And then the other trend we saw in the food space this year was the kind of ag-tech thing of um, this merging, if you will, of um, technology and agriculture as as the tech world noticed that ag was having trouble you know, growing food in a drought in various parts of the world. And many very interesting small companies came up with solutions for how farmers could grow their food without using quite so much water. One I'm thinking about is, is um, Cool Terra, this idea that carbon can be kind of used to store water right around a plant's root. Very interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, and one of the interesting things I, I saw about this space is there's a lot going on, as you say. Uh, but most of the companies don't really connect it to climate change. Um, it's, it's sort of connected to weather. It's sort of connected to technology. It's sort of. I went to a, a, a one-day conference down uh, in uh, Salinas that was produced by Forbes Magazine. Uh, on AgTech. And uh, what was just fascinating to me was that the entire day I was there, uh, all these speakers talking about all these things that they were doing, exactly what you're talking about, Barbara, the words climate change never came up. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to be an interesting, you know, uh, and this is, I guess they're doing this in, obviously, in the throes of a drought in California, which was where the conference was held, but also looking at just resource constraints in general, but. I think part of what there's two things that says. One is that they're sort of a denial mm-hmm. or they're not looking at the bigger picture, but also that as climate does become Uh, A bigger issue for for farmers and the ag community in general that these technologies are really going to come into the fore.
2: I think another part of it is that climate change may not fit as easily into their sales pitch. A lot of the technologies I've seen are around data analytics, and this can save you money and improve your efficiency. So more of that bottom line business case.
3: Totally, data and sensors were a big thing in ag tech this year. Like putting sensors next to your plants or in individual fields to really zero in on what a particular field needs yeah, or put it in a shipping
2: container in the middle of the city that's growing microgreens all sorts of permutations
0: well that that whole uh, indoor ag piece and urban ag piece is really going to be living large too uh, I, I spent some time uh looking and writing about it and i was in detroit looking at uh, some of the efforts that are taking place there and it's kind of exciting, uh, and, and and potentially disruptive in the ability, at least with some kinds of produce, green leafy greens, for example, to be able to grow twenty-five thousand head of lettuce in a shipping container in the middle of town, uh, with with a fraction of the inputs, um, and you know that's gonna you know I think. Lead to the relocalization of, of commerce, and in, in, at least in certain food hubs. Not that he, I mean, Detroit's actually on the way on the verge of becoming one. Um, but as those technologies improve, uh, hydroponics and the lighting and everything else, which all, all by the way all came from developments in the cannabis industry, mm-hmm. uh, that really uh, did uh, improve the technology for growing food indoors, growing plants indoors. Um, I think we're going to start to see how that uh, hopefully, uh, potentially not only disrupts some food systems, but makes food accessible uh, in food deserts, in in cities where uh, they simply don't have grocery stores. Some people that we've seen this now, we see right here in Oakland, California, where people in some of the poorest parts of town with some of the, the worst grocery stores or just lack of grocery stores, but plenty of liquor stores, are now growing their own food and it's a very exciting development.
3: Right, or they're growing them in plots that are basically abandoned plots and now have become these mini farms in the center of a city.
2: Yeah. And to that end, in terms of uh, urban development and all that we're seeing in in the landscape of cities, one of the stories that I've been following closely for the last year is that of connected cars and what some in sustainability circles like to call shared mobility, which is this whole convergence of traditional automakers looking to go high tech, whether that's implementing electric powertrains or all sorts of new tech gizmos to, to measure the efficiency of your car, um, but also companies like Lyft and Uber and this whole ride-sharing and car-sharing companies like Zipcar, um, really sort of messing stuff up in the transportation industry. Um, it's really a completely new landscape that I think is going to continue to evolve rapidly, especially as we get more information about what this all means for the potential of carbon emissions. Um, no one really knows at this point. The only studies that have been done have been committed by Uber and Lyft themselves, but there's a bunch of academics, including some at uh, over at Cal University, California Berkeley, um, that are hoping to quantify this early in 2016.
3: And then there's the movement of who needs cars anyway? I mean, we saw a little company Gen Z come into Oakland and other parts of the world where they're offering electric-powered scooters and bicycles that, with uh, power stations built in Oakland, it's like forget the car. Yeah. Micro mobility. Yeah.
0: But all of this is really leading uh, car companies from around the world to come to Silicon Valley. And in fact, uh, Lauren, you've been covering this. Uh, it's hard to find a large global uh, automotive or automotive company, they now call themselves mobility companies <laughs> right. in some cases. Uh, that does not have an R&D facility somewhere near San Jose, California somewhere in the peninsula.
2: Yeah, uh, I was just at a big dog and pony show hosted by Toyota a few weeks ago in San Francisco um, and they were talking about a a billion dollar investment in artificial intelligence that they're going to be making in partnership with some Silicon Valley researchers. Um, But yeah, just off the top of my head I've been at Mercedes has a big uh, compound down in Sunnyvale, California. Ford opened a new shop this year just down the street from tesla and palo alto they really are everywhere and then you've got companies like bmw along with mercedes that have been here since the 90s so in some ways it's other companies catching up to what their competitors have been onto for a while but i think they're all sort of grappling with
3: how the hell do we move forward in this really increasingly crowded industry The Ford CEO was just at their Silicon Valley establishment and invited some people there, or actually like 100 people there. But one of the surprising elements was he said he's there every six weeks, Mm -hmm. that this has really become very important to Ford, what happens in the whole mobility space. So they're looking at innovation as like a really key strategic issue at Ford.
2: Right. Transportation does seem like sort of a perfect microcosm for this bigger issue of large corporations trying to tap into this esteemed idea of Silicon Valley innovation. And I think the perennial difficulty there is how you can go throw some money at a little R&D shop and have them be doing their thing in Silicon Valley, but how do you actually translate that back to headquarters of the big bureaucratic corporation? Uh, I think... Uh, car companies are on the front lines of that.
0: Yeah, One of the things that's been gratifying over the past few weeks post-cop, and it, sort of was, a, it was just a data point cop in, in a certain way, but it was really an affirmation of, of what we've been doing with our Verge conference over the past five years, bringing together this what's going on with technology, with what's going on in sustainability and this convergence of technology and sustainability this is really what came out of Paris and and it was really gratifying We've been I've been talking with the Verge conference team um, you know the conversation in, in Paris at COP 21 was very much about low carbon technologies and there was about transportation systems and building systems and and cities and and of course energy and microgrids and renewable energy and and, and ha- what happens when they come together and what are the implications for climate change and for getting to the two degrees or one and a half degrees centigrade uh, or less uh, that everyone is hoping will come at, be, result from from the COP 21 Paris Agreement, uh, and and it's really uh, you know as we go down this path and continue to grow uh, the Verge Conference this year, moving to the uh, uh, Santa Clara Convention Center, uh, a lot of these technologies are. I mean, we're really tracking exactly where technology is going and how the car companies and as one of great example of this, are really um, at the center of all these changes. And they're not selling it on a, you know, talking about carbon and climate, sort of like the ag- agriculture is, you know, that's not a real selling point, but this is gonna have real implications for how we get to a low-carbon economy, and then of course the other piece is how we pay for it all.
2: Right. I was going to say the one thing that sort of connects the dots on all of these uh, interesting areas, like shared mobility and ag tech and microgrids is how you pay for this, especially since uh, a lot of these shifts would be very infrastructure intensive. Uh, with clean energy, you've got to be paying to build major wind and solar farms. With cars, you've got to be paying to build out EV infrastructure um, or so- all sorts of sort of sensor-equipped roads and infrastructure. Um, but I know, Barbara, you've been covering the finance sector and specifically what big banks have been doing on this front. Can you talk a little bit about some of the commitments you've seen there?
3: Well. I will just say that as an observer on the other side of the ocean, of COP21, one of the interesting things was the rush of money to pledged. We had major financial institutions saying, you know, we're, we're ready to finance clean energy as well as efforts in developing countries. And then you had Bill Gates and his billionaire club of something like, what, 28 billionaires who pledged significant money towards clean energy innovation. And digging a little deeper in that, uh, Goldman Sachs put out a really great report called The Low Carbon Economy and spoke about a $600 billion revenue opportunity over the next kind of, I don't know what, something like 15 years or so or 20 years. But it sees this as a growth opportunity for sure as opposed to just something we ought to do. I mean, and they've shifted resources as have... Um, city and Bank of America a number of large financial institutions have have made available really big funds to finance clean energy Mm -hmm. And and innovation
2: One term I've been hearing more is green greed This idea like you're saying That there's a a potential revenue upside here That I think big banks But also companies are seizing onto When they see the potential for clean energy To be a way to uh, lock down their energy costs For decades into the future Um, So uh, sustainability as a financial imperative Is something that environmentalists Have been talking about for a long time But I think you're seeing more cases of that Actually coming to fruition now, though I will say, in the short term, we've also seen some interesting friction uh, where you have companies like Sun Edison and NRG dealing with deep short-term losses, even though they are sort of on the more progressive and long-term. Uh, so, how you reconcile that long and short-term financial window will be interesting.
0: Well, this is where greed overtook green. I mean, uh, this is where the shareholders at at NRG said. Um, you know we it's nice that you're investing in in renewables and want to be one of the leading renewables companies and have even made a, a public statement to be carbon neutral by mid century but you know we want our profits we want uh, to take money off the table we the, and the most profitable thing energy's doing is uh, is is its its fossil fuel power plants and so that's what kicks out the uh, the dividends that's what brings the shareholder return that keeps the stock high and so you know we, Despite Paris, despite the Pope, despite the chain, the the improvements in the technologies and the convergence and everything else, there's still this short-termism that investors, for better or for worse, uh, focus on, and that's going to hamper this until we can decide that that's not the first order of business anymore.
3: Yeah. However, there was definitely a little bit of an inflection point on the on the stock market that day. After the agreement was reached, it was interesting to see that all these solar companies and um, a couple others that, you know, could benefit by this deal, their stocks all jumped. The post-cop Wall Street bounce. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't necessarily last just a day or two, but, you know.
2: Well, policy certainty is one of the things that people keep – we heard that over and over again at Paris that one of the key functions of COP21 was to send a market signal that, okay, time to dump your money into clean energy in a big way. So I think we'll continue to see that play out.
0: Yeah, because one of the questions I have about all this, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, Barbara or Lauren, but – you know, is there going to be too much money chasing too few opportunities? You know, is there going to be a, a clean energy bubble where there's just, you know, there's so much money out there to, to invest, to lend, uh, that all of a sudden there's just not enough good quality deals and, and maybe the money sits on the sidelines, maybe the valuations get pumped up in, in, a, in a bubble-like fashion, but I'm a little mm-hmm. concerned about that.
3: Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, the other piece of that is will they be chasing the same kind of deals whereas that issue of who's going to pay for what happens in the developing world Mm -hmm. will that be able to attract money
2: yeah Yeah, uneven development patterns for sure um i know i know i'm not sure we're going to answer all of these questions right now um but it's been an interesting year for sure uh looking forward to lots more stories in 2016 but right now we're going to get even deeper into detail with a real live chief sustainability officer We checked in with John Davies, who runs Gben, our executive network. But joining us now in studio, very exciting—we have the Massachusetts-based senior vice president and chief sustainability officer of EMC, big IT firm, cloud computing, storage, all types of things. Catherine Winkler, how's it going, Catherine?
4: It's going great, Lauren. How are you doing?
2: Good, good. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about what EMC does and your role within the company?
4: Sure. EMC is an information technology company. As you pointed out, we focus on big data analytics, uh, cloud computing, really helping our customers to transform to what's becoming a fully digital economy. My role as chief sustainability officer is establishing our overarching sustainability strategy and working with teams throughout the company to embed sustainability into how we make decisions every day.
2: Mm-hmm. And you are a member of Gben, so how how
4: is that? Been? I am a proud founding member of G-Ben. Uh-huh. Um I was not scared away by our first meeting with very sub-zero temperatures, <laughs> um, but in fact, it has been a, a great benefit for us. We really believe at EMC we have a set of principles for sustainability, and one of them is that we really need to make change at scale and work with our peers to do that. And in GBAN, we've built relationships with the folks at Greenbiz, but also with one another that have created trust and sharing and given us really new ideas that we can bring back and share what we've learned. It's been a great experience.
2: Yeah. So in that idea of sort of change at scale, I think obviously 2015 has been a big year with COP, the Pope's encyclical. I mean, from the outside, it does seem like maybe the pieces are coming together. Maybe we're hitting some sort of inflection point. What's your read on everything we've seen?
4: I have never been more hopeful, frankly. This year was tremendous. Bringing together uh, the the Pope's encyclical, which I read cover to cover. I may not agree with everything in it, but... The, the systems approach the understanding that the environment and the future of humanity are deeply intertwined was so powerful and then cop and it actually culminated somewhat quietly last week in the renewable renewable energy um, taxes mm-hmm. or excuse me subsidies right and
0: this is that Congress passed and President Obama signed the law that extended the investment tax credits for wind and solar.
4: Exactly. And it's exciting because I wouldn't have expected that, or I would have expected at least a lot of, you know, furor and usual, you know, re- rhetoric on the hill over that. So how,
0: how does that change your approach to renewables? I know buying renewables has been a high priority at EMC. How does that affect what your plans are for the next year or two?
4: Well, one of the best things that happened in terms of coming together over the last, I want to say, year and a half, actually, was a group of NGOs coming together. WWF, WRI, RMI, uh, BSR, and Series, which I can actually pronounce as opposed to a series of letters. Um <laughs> they really came together with a group of 13 forward-thinking companies to establish a set of principles around renewable energy that they would like to be able to procure from the utility sector. And, you know, first among those principles, of course, that it must be um, additional. That, in other words, when we buy renewable energy, we want to be sure that we're adding to the available um, capacity of renewable energy. And other principles such as not, you know... um, overburdening ratepayers who aren't getting advantage from it and so on. But it turned out to be much more than principles. We signed on um, in the first tranche afterwards. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, TED Talk on how to start a movement, but we weren't one of the leaders, but they make it clear that the fast followers are really important for a movement. So we'll take some credit <laughs> for that. The fast followers are the ones
0: that create a movement. Until they come in, it's just a thing. <laughs> exactly,
4: exactly. So there are now, um, I think, 50 or close to 50 companies that have signed on, but it's more than signing. What's happening is we're coming together, meeting with the regulators, meeting with the utilities, demonstrating the demand that's out there and the commitment that the corporations have to actually buy these renewables. And so making clear that there is a market, that there is a model for what what we need, I think it's fundamentally changing the dynamics of the availability of renewables. Really exciting. Mm -hmm. It is a
2: complex landscape right now. You've got PPAs, virtual PPAs, all sorts of stuff. Um, I'm curious for you, what are you hoping to see like in the next year or so? Is it like an issue of policy clarity, more companies getting on board? What do you think could sort of tip the balances?
4: I don't think we're going to see policy clarity from Washington. I mean, it's a presidential year. There'll be a lot of rhetoric. I do think a lot of the, um, a lot of the anti-renewable or anti-climate change rhetoric is sort of pro-forma, but you have to let that play out. But a ton is happening at the state level. I think we're going to see more companies getting on board, more well, more companies speaking out, um, as they did for COP, which was pretty amazing. I mean, the strength of the voice of business was very important at the COP. So I think we're going to see a lot happening in, at the state and utility level.
0: Let's talk about COP uh, in terms of your, you, did, you chose not to go. In fact, you wrote a, a really great piece for us on FOMO, fear of missing out, of, of COP, and uh, we can. If you and I to, feel
4: like I let missed out. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, um,
0: but whether you're there or not, uh, what difference do you think COP will make in terms of, well, in terms of the way EMC thinks about or acts, or, or the support you have, or, or anything else that affects how you might have uh, might might operate differently compared to if they hadn't come to an agreement.
4: I think that the results of COP are going to give really clear signals, and it also gives more permission for people to talk openly about it. At EMC, we have been in the process of implementing a price on carbon for um, capital investments to understand the long-term sort of price risk of carbon, and I think the outcome of COP is really going to help us accelerate the implementation of the carbon price, for example.
0: So you, you look at, just to understand that When you make capital investments, you factor in a price of where you think carbon will be and how that will affect uh, the outcomes, of the uh, the returns on those investments?
4: Exactly, exactly. We want to look at it both in terms of the, the potential price on carbon, but also there's a cost. Whether it's a reputational cost, uh, a cost because we have public commitments that we have to achieve, and so there's a mitigation cost. And it, when comparing two different capital investments, it's really important to recognize the differential and the potential cost. We call it also sometimes a risk price of carbon. Yeah,
0: well, I was going to say that goes to risk, too, which is uh, I think have been a part of the conversation at AMC.
4: Risk has been a great part of the conversation, particularly in the past two years, I would say. We've been working very closely with our chief risk officer, attended together several conversations on how do we move them forward. Our stakeholders have asked us as well at our our stakeholder forums how we integrate risk and materiality. This year, we've just completed a new materiality assessment where we started from the perspective of our business strategy and our risk outcomes, what we know from our risk analysis. And that has served as the basis of how we're prioritizing our sustainability initiatives.
0: When you talk about risk, what kind of risk are you talking about? There's financial risk, reputational risk, business continuity risk, right to operate risk. What what are you factoring in here?
4: We factor all of those in. Um, We have been working very closely with the risk team to try to monetize some of that. I'm always a little bit conflicted about whether monetizing it is the right thing to do, but it certainly um, helps compare the relative impacts to the business. But we look, and in our materiality assessment, not only at the risks to EMC, reputational cost, um, license operate, and so on, but we're also look at the risks to society, by our operations and the opportunities to society, in fact. And another way of putting that is um, trying to relatively evaluate our positive and negative impacts. Mm-hmm.
2: And in terms of sort of one of the perennial issues, I think it's sort of this whole issue of waste in terms of impacts that all companies and all industries make. But I do think in IT, there is this history of e-waste to sort of being a particularly entrenched issue. I'm curious what you make, again, hearkening back to our conversation with John about the circular economy. Um, Is that an area where you think uh, more inroads could possibly be made in the IT industry?
4: I absolutely believe the IT industry has a lot that we've done, but much more ahead of us in terms of getting to a circular economy. Our products are still not made from renewed or renewable materials for the most part. We have a lot more that we can do to be recovering value at the end of life, while at the same time ensuring that we're providing livelihoods for the people that are part of the waste economy. We want to turn it into a circular economy, but the economy part still needs to be there so that those people have um, a role to play and value to get out of the process.
2: So that sounds like it involves maybe some deeper supply chain work and sort of going back to into your manufacturing
4: processes? It does. I think it mostly uh, requires more of an ecosystem that engages the processing, the other industries that leverage the materials or can provide them so that we can build an ecosystem that um, engages the other industries that use similar materials, but also, again, engages the informal workforce so that there are benefits to be had in the countries where we're selling our equipment. Mm
0: -hmm. So Catherine, you said you've never been more hopeful. What's your hope for 2016?
4: My hope for 2016 is that we make substantial progress in not having to justify sustainability because it is so well understood to be a core business issue.
0: Great. Well, that sounds like a good wish for any year. Um, Catherine Winkler, CSO of EMC, thanks so much for stopping by and Happy New Year.
4: Happy New Year to you and to everybody at GreenBiz, Joel. Thank you.
0: And that's our 350 podcast for this week and this year. You can find links to the organization, stories, and events that we mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com 350. Thanks, as always, to 350's producer, Soraya Melkonian. We'll be back next week on our usual day, Friday, January 7th, with our look ahead at 2016. As always, send us your ideas, feedback, and comments to 350 at greenbiz.com. And for the latest news, insight, and resources on sustainable business and clean technology, visit GreenBiz.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, Green Buzz. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a safe and happy new year.